Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Here we go with another tale from the underground, and the subject of today's episode is Skinhead, the counter-counterculture. Beatniks, boot boys, black GIs, suedeheads, scar, subcultures, rude boys, reggae, racism, football hooliganism and fashion. We cover all these subjects in brief uh, today with my guest, the artist, filmmaker, writer and activist Stuart Home. Skinhead, one of the most enduring subcultures that generally gets left out of the countercultural history. My uh, interest in it was provoked recently by an image that I saw that was posted in the context of a conversation about football hooliganism from the 60s and 70s. The image shows a West London street in Chelsea near the football ground with a row of boys glaring, grinning uh, at the photographer, looking pretty threatening. They're all white and they were all skinheads. But, as it turns out, the image itself had been cropped because on each end of the row of young, uh, glaring, grinning, young, white skinhead men was a black skinhead young man. It had been edited, I think, really to reinforce the cliché about skinhead. And some of those clichés we are going to discuss and possibly overturn today. So, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Stuart Home. Hello, Stuart. Hello. Hi. Welcome, Stuart. Um, you know, as I always do, sort of don't really like to butcher my guests' bios, particularly when they're as complex and uh, countercultural as yours. So why don't you tell us, who is Stuart Home? Um, a mystery wrapped in an enigma, that kind of thing. But uh, no, you know, I'm just a guy who uh, was born in the early 60s grew up through um, 70s. So, you know, I'm too young to have been an original skinhead. My mother was a beatnik hippie. Uh, the beatnik thing fed into skinheads in some ways through mod because she was a, a modernist beatnik into modern jazz. Uh, and I got into the skinhead thing through boot boy. You know, right. when I was at school in 73, I went to secondary school um, boot boy was the fashion. So you had um, the modernist beat, uh, beatniks um, who went into, on one strand that went into mod, uh, which the classic kind of mod people think about. You maybe think of bands like The Creation or The Attack, um, that kind of later mod thing. And then you had the split between the hard mod, uh, which went into skinhead and the kind of more hippie trajectory, which is uh, the kind of line my mum and her friends took out of the kind of modernist jazz thing. They kind of bypassed the uh, what people would think of as the classic mod. <laughs> would you consider yourself to be a skinhead now? I mean, you've got very short hair. No, I've got short hair, but uh, yeah, what can you do during lockdown when you've got a pair of clippers <laughs> and you're shaving your own head? The shorter you do it, the easier the cut is um, when yeah. you're using the clippers. You try and do a number four and it might not go right, so you have to go down for a number yeah. one anyway. The unforeseen consequences of uh, lockdown. Uh, but, you know, you are a writer, artist, filmmaker, lots of other things. How do you describe yourself? It's like it depends what I'm doing. If I'm applying for a grant as a, uh, an artist, uh, then I'm an artist. And if I'm trying to get a book published, I'm a writer. But, you know, I'm kind of... Um, it's precisely if you think about what Marx said about um, disalienation to be um, 
fisherman in the morning, a hunter in the afternoon, and a critical critic at night. Of course, being a vegetarian, I'll be a porn star in the afternoon, right? <laughs> hunter. But uh, it's that thing about realizing yourself um, through kind of him, uh, physically, emotionally, um, intellectually. Those are all the facets of being human, and you don't have to kind of fixate on one of those things. So I don't like to fixate on being a um, artist or a writer sometimes i'm just a guy walking down the street you know to people who don't know what i do um and the same thing with the the subcultures i mean when i got into boot boy thing we weren't mixing between different cultures but i mean that split in different ways i mean a lot of kids i knew got into northern soul i could if you had shortish hair and you had some button-down shirts and stay pressed and stuff like that pair of boots uh you could kind of rough it up one night and go out and see the uk subs then you could kind of um, smooth it down with a more mod look, um, you know, loafers or whatever, and um, go and see the Purple Hearts in being mod the next night. And then on the third night, you could kind of look like a skin if you felt like it. <laughs> um, and I would swap between all those things, and I always did that in the late 70s. And it, it was the same thing, you know, even in 77, because the kind of uh, skin mod revivals didn't really come until 78, 79. Um you know, I like Northern Soul because out with the boot boy thing, a lot of boot boys have got into that. And if you look at that, the evolution of that look, and if you look at a band like uh, the Gorillas with Jesse Hector, they've got that classic boot boy look where they've got the uh, Oxford bags and they've got the sideburns and the kind of grown out mod style hair. I mean, that that's a look that also came out of skinhead, but... Um, I mean, we could do the whole this whole conversation really in a way about different looks, um, uh, different times. Uh, but to circle back to you know where this started for me most recently, um, you know I mentioned in the intro this image that I'd come across, um, you know of these supposedly kind of football hooligan skinheads in Chelsea in West London, and then you know the photograph turns out to have been cropped, so they weren't just white boys, you know there there was there was black kids there too, uh, and you know that made me think it's a, it's a it's a much more complicated um, area than I realised. And I think that there's been a lot of kind of, I suppose, prejudices, cliches, misunderstandings about the whole skin thing. You know, that association, for instance, with violence and football hooliganism. I know that's part of it. I'm going to talk about that later. But there's a lot more to it than that and where it came from and, you know, what, what it went into, all these different uh, um, styles, right? And um, But it did strike me that it's not something that we generally think about as being counterculture, but in fact it is, or at least, you know, maybe as I was saying, it was counter-counterculture. It was quite different than in the 60s anyway, um, you know, and the 70s maybe, the that whole long-haired hippie thing that we tend to think of more when we talk about say 60s London or 60s Britain um, it was a different thing altogether and quite opposite to that but it was counterculture and it has been sort of rather omitted from the countercultural story in some ways right but I mean all sorts of things get omitted so again the classic story of skinhead is that um, it started in the East End in 1969 East End of London, but that's not actually true as far as I can tell. I mean, this is a bit of a roundabout story, but in uh, January 1978, I went to see Sham 69, as you would do uh, back then, who were, you know, a great laugh live until they start having all the trouble at the gigs from, uh, you know, Nazis, a lot of whom look like skinheads. Um, 
And supporting them were a band called Master Switch, which was fronted by a guy called Jimmy Edwards, who I didn't know anything about at the time, but he seemed like a bit of a plonker to me when I was, how old was I then? 15. Um, so me and a couple of other guys jumped on stage and wrecked their set. And, um, you know, Jimmy Percy came out and said, oh, we shouldn't be fighting, we should be together, blah, 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 let them play and all this stuff. And he ended up, Jimmy Edwards at the end of their set, he looked like an older guy as well, not like a punk rock band age um although you know he probably wasn't so different from joe strummer or someone um you know he said see you at wembley at the end of the set and i never thought much about it but then years later i wrote something about it and then he contacted me and said i had to meet him um you know it turned out he's this guy with this whole history uh which i didn't know about and he started off in this band called Neat Change in the mid-60s. He used to kind of sell out the marquee on Saturday nights. I mean, I checked out this history. Um, and he, you know, I went to Egham to interview him, got on the train at Waterloo, went down to Egham where he lived at the time. He's dead now. Um, and then I, I kind of typed up the interview, went through his whole history. Um, and he sent me some photographs. And in the interview, he'd said that the band had been a mod skinhead band. Now, this band broke up in 68, yeah. And he sent me photos of the band and there, you know, these photos have to be from between 66 and 68. They weren't dated, but that's when the band was going. Two of the band members are dressed like skinheads. Hmm. And his story was that they um, copied it from black GIs who they knew because they thought the look was cool and it was black American soldiers that they got the look from. And this is definitely before 69. I mean, it might only be 68, but it could be 67. Doesn't look to me like it's 66. Right, so it emerged earlier than um, we mainly think. Uh, and you were saying it was sort of, so there was the kind of beatnik thing going on, late 50s, early 60s, and that sort of split into two different directions, hippies and mods. The kind of, well, within the beatnik scene, and the classic kind of description of this is a friend of my mother's called Terry Taylor, um, who was the model for the unnamed photographer in Colin McInnes's Absolute Beginners, uh, which obviously you know. And Terry wrote a book called Baron's Court All Change, which was published in 61 by McGibbon and Key, which was also McInnes's publisher. Right. And, and in that, it's the classic description of the kind of early mod scene, but they're beatnik modernists. So the beatnik scene is split into the trad dads who dress sloppy and the uh, kind of cool modernists like Ter Terry. So he's writing about going down to Cecil G to mm -hmm. buy his button-down shirts and all that classic mod culture. But what's turned around within that history from how you'd imagine it is that the uh, the kind of sharply dressed working class modernist kids, which is like Terry and my mum. But anyway, what's turned around in that book is that the kind of sharply dressed working class modernist kids in the modern jazz who became the mods um, are smoking dope. And the trad dogs who are sloppily dressed middle class, they're, um, you know, taking amphetamines and stuff. Uh, you know, there's also um, heroines mentioned in the book. And as far as I can determine, it's the first British mo uh, novel to mention LSD as well. So, but the, you know, it's an incredible history of early mod, a lot of which conforms to what you think about the early mod scene. If you can kind of take it back, but you know, beyond those bands who use that image, I've mentioned the attack and the creation of course, mm -hmm. people always think of the who in terms of that as well to the earlier scene. Um, but in terms of the drug consumption, you know, what the cliche is completely reversed. Right. So the cliche has been that the working class kids do speed 
and the middle class kids, the bourgeois kids, do weed or smoke yeah, weed. Yeah, and in the, in this book, which was you know published sixty one and is an absolutely authentic account of that mod scene, and you can look at pictures of Terry from sixty one and even earlier. I mean, he um, through Colin McInnes, who he met in fifty six. He got to um, know Victor Musgrave, who ran Gallery One. I don't know if you know that gallery. Victor Musgrave was in an open marriage with Ida Carr, who, again, is a very important uh, in the revival of kind of photography and consideration of photography photography as an art form in the UK, very important figure. Uh, But she was kind of eclipsed by those hipper 60s male photographers. Um, But anyway, she was 25 years older than Terry. But So there's these pictures of him in... um, above Gallery 1 in Soho in 56, like smoking dope and everything. But you look at his clothes, um, you know, that is the absolutely classic mod look. And when you read in the novel about what he, he talks about shirts and how he could uh, spend all his money that he's made from drug dealing on on all these button-down shirts from Cecil G, that's a totally, uh, the totally mod thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, I mean, it was a class thing then. So it was young working-class guys who became mods and working-class girls... And uh, so, but how did that evolve into skin, skinhead? Okay, well, the, I mean, there's a t- so you have that, you have the split between the trad and the modernist beatnik scene. And it's the modernist scene that goes into um, what you think of your classic mod, scooter, yeah, Fishtail Park or whatever. Um, and you have the other side of that, which is going from the dope gang into the ideas of consciousness expansion. I mean, Terry and my mother and other people they knew uh, were involved in the first uh, major LSD factory bust, a guy called Victor James Kapoor, who they got to make um, acid for them. So they're going off into that hippie thing because they're interested in that consciousness expansion. Um, and on the other side, you have the more kind of, uh, you could say, commercialised aspect of it uh, that goes through the scooter thing. And you've got the, um, the particularly in the north with the northern soul, you've got the, um, the sticking to the older kind of style of music and the dance. So you have all those clubs like the Twisted Wheel. Um, and so the kind of older mod culture is uh, kind of retained and that gets um, also stripped back in terms of look because if you're riding a scooter you don't want to be wearing too fancy clothes necessarily so you can strip that look back and that goes into the uh, the skinhead thing and you see as the skinhead evolves I mean the revival mixes up the looks so in you know 79 you'd see guys who would be wearing a crombie with a number one crop now that was never an original skinhead look because the skinhead went from skinhead to the slightly longer hair, which was the suede head, which was when the crombie came in. But it's the same with the mod revival. People just mix up the um, the way the clothes, they mix and match the clothes from, you know, different periods where the fashion changed, you know, on a kind of seasonal or annual basis. Right. But I mean, what was so, what was the classic sort of 60s um, skinhead look in its pure form? In pure form, well, I mean, it's just you wouldn't. the The classic look is to have the the, the short cropped hair, and then if you look at those neat change photographs, I think they're wearing flight jackets, and um, you know, I think they're probably wearing stay pressed or some kind of similar trousers. Don't think, think they're wearing jeans, but you might go into Levi's as well. But you definitely wouldn't have the crombie with the really short hair. The two things just never went to, together. 
Um, and the half must trousers um, with turnips and the Dr. Martins, when was that? I think that's coming a bit later, you know what I mean? You can look at stuff and you can see that the clothes don't necessarily go together right. I mean, it's the same if you um, look at films now, recreated looks from the 80s, you can see combinations aren't necessarily always right. They're mixing up years. Yeah, kind of slightly romanticised view of it maybe too. But um, just to go back to that thing about, uh, you know, counter-counterculture. So, you know, different values emerged from, you know, a strand of mod uh, working-class kids. Um was it in reaction to that kind of, you know, the hairy counterculture, the Eastern philosophy, consciousness expansion, the incense, the bells, you know, that kind of whole uh, occult exoticism? Was it much more street? And, you know, did they, did the skins actually hate the hippies? Certainly, if you uh, read Richard Allen, you know, it, it, he'll have all the lines in his skinhead books about how they uh, hate and, you know, can't stand hippies and whatever. Um, but I don't think to start with that was particularly it. It's just like kids into their own thing. They're, they're kind of getting a look and uh, modeling stuff on, say, Rude Boys, on American GIs, wherever they're getting it from, and in, into a particular music. And I think that it's a more positive thing than being, you know, it's like the hippie consciousness expansion didn't appeal to them. But um, at the same time, it's a kind of uh, Friday night, Saturday night, weekend escape thing more than a kind of we hate hippies. Got it. So like it's like any, you know, youth culture, any subculture, um, you know, wants to distinguish itself by music and clothes and hair you know, from uh, the other kids, the other cultures. So it's more that than meaning that you're necessarily anti It's just that you want it to be quite different, different values, and coming from a different place. And so that working-class place, that was, was that East London? Well, I mean, if you take the need change, that turns it around because need change were from, like, um, West London, Hounslow. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, I've seen the pictures. <laughs> that clearly, two members of the band look like skinheads in uh, by '68. So you know, it's often very hard to say where these things emerge from. And again, you know, the thing with the mod, the classic account is that the mod comes from uh, East End. But you know, if you want to take Terry Teller as a paradigmatic mod and the model for absolute beginners, you know, he came from the West Side of London again, not from. Um, not from the east side. So, and I noticed this as well with um, criminals. You know, if you look at uh, criminal biographies, so my mother's cousin is a guy called Ray the Cat Jones, who made a famous escape from Pentonville in 58, was all over the front pages. Um, and he turns up in, you know, a lot of those London 50s, 60s criminal uh, ghosted autobiographies and stuff. Uh he moved to the East End, which is probably why he's better known than other criminals in the family, because the uh, my mum's uncle, Dinny, and her cousins who lived in Paddington um, were, you know, burglars, gangsters, whatever. But when you start looking at uh, the history of London, there's a, in terms of crime in the 50s and 60s, there's a fetishisation of uh, South and East London as well. At uh, the expense of West London, I'm not quite sure why that happens both with the youth culture and with crime. But I think in terms of the, the crime, it's certain people getting a certain amount of prominence. And uh, then they talk about the people they know. So that's the connections, which is why, um, you, you know, the West London 
kind of crime scene for the 50s and 60s, 70s isn't just isn't as well documented in terms of kind of popularly published books and stuff. Um, and I guess with the youth culture, maybe uh, some of the music journalists who are writing about the youth cultures, uh, when they talk about, you know, freezing with your bum flaps down on the station at Romford, you know, they're talking about their youth. So they were coming into the centre of town from Romford or East. So they want to fetishise the East End. So they credit it all to the East End. But I think probably you'll find it arose more, you know, around different parts of London, but there's just a desire on the parts of those from uh, East End or South to uh, make where they came from prominent. Because again, if you want to... Um, look at the kind of more rude by angle, then maybe you want to fetishise Brixton. Although, you know, where my mum was living from, I mean, she was living in Islington up to 61, then she moved uh, to Labrick Grove. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of Trinidadians there. So in the house where she had a bed sit, there was uh, Russ Henderson, who had the first steel band on, on the streets of London, lived in the basement, one of the two basement flats in that house. Um, you know, he's a very important figure, but it's, you know, jazz um, and steel drum stuff. So that's a little bit different than the kind of ska reggae. Yeah, and I mean, just in terms of what you were saying earlier, I mean, that's also quite interesting, isn't it? The way that um, sort of Guy Ritchie uh, has probably cemented it, you know, this association between East London and crime and gangsters and stuff. That's kind of firmly fixed in the public imagination, isn't it? But uh, going back to uh, this, the steel bands and what you're saying there um, about rude boys. I mean, what is a rude boy or what was a rude boy? Well, a rude boy is a kind of sharp-dressed uh, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, Jamaican or West Indian equivalent of um, a kind of mod and taking up a lot of style from kind of American preppy culture. You know, so again, that's a funny thing because when I would go to um, the US in the 80s, uh, on those um, cheap flights where you'd courier documents, courier flights. Um, I, you just have your hand luggage because all the, the stuff you're carrying was in the hold, so you'd get into the States for nothing, basically. Um, I'd go in a, you know, charity, what, what do they call the charity? Thrift stores, they call them in the States, don't they? Charity shop. And buy a load of clothes because I'd arrive there without any clothes and buy the um, American button-downs. And then you meet skinheads in the States who'd like to say, why are you wearing that? <laughs> and they, they're paying to import, you know, Brutus and Ben Sherman shirts. And you're just laughing and say, yeah, but the Brutus and Ben Sherman are copies of these. <laughs> Nothing wrong with this that I got for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so like you got caught in a sort of sartorial um, feedback loop by the sense of it. Exactly. <laughs> but, that, you know, uh, supposedly that was where, you know, the... Um, kind of rude boys were looking at American kind of preppy college kids, I guess, slightly aspirational. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, how much that culture, you know, countercultural stuff during that time came from the States. But when you say West Indies, do you mean the in the West Indies or the West Indian immigrants in London? I think both, in Jamaica anyway, because if you look at listen to those old Prince Buster records, but then again, there's all the references to Rude Boy and um, Judge Dredd and all that stuff. Uh but again, you never know how much they're picking up on it for commercial purposes and then inserting it into their own culture because I've never been to Kingston in Jamaica or anywhere else in the West Indies. So, you know, it's not necessarily easy to get a kind of um, grasp on the culture other than as it existed in London. Yeah. Uh, you know, which... yeah. So let's dig in a bit into that, um, you know, 
Western Jamaican influence in skinheads. And, you know, as I said, in that photograph, the, the kids on the end, you know, they look like uh, rude boys, I think. They were, you know, West Indian uh, kids, uh, but, you know, dressed smartly and like, like, like the skins. And so it's become a bit of a cliche, I suppose, or a bit of a kind of, again, another, another misunderstanding um, that those late 60s skins, you know, white were racist actually and I know that race racial stuff is part of this story too but at that time you know when it emerged um, from mod it it wasn't just the white only thing at all no I don't think um, necessarily because especially if they were modeling on black GIs and rude boys then and listening to scar I mean I'm not saying that people can't embrace contradictions and that you couldn't be into that and also be racist which is also you know the cliche of my best friend is black um which is an excuse often uh, used for uh, racism you know what i mean but um i i don't think that kind of conscious politicization of it came in until the kind of revival in the 70s which isn't to say that some of the original skins weren't or couldn't have been racist and also that uh you know i but i, I don't think the um the subculture was politicized in that way at all. Um, you know, and as on an anecdotal level, I can remember um, going to, uh, you know, kind of gigs in uh, Brixton in uh, late seventies and coming across this guy who was an original skinhead called Ken, who was also a junkie, which is not necessarily what you um, associate with uh, skinheads, but he also took to wearing, um, a swastika armband and seemed to be racist. Um, he had a punk girlfriend, a younger punk girlfriend, which was why he was turning up at the punk gigs in Brixton. Uh, but South London original skinhead, not the only original skinhead I met at the time, he met others. Um, but it turned out, I found out that he'd previously been married to a black woman. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of contradictions running through. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of contradictions. I mean, it is a complex story. And, um, you know, at that time, of course, there was this whole thing emerging you know the football hooligan it was um massive thing in the media wasn't it and sort of anti-social behavior young men and you know you mentioned earlier uh those skinhead books by richard allen i mean that's that story is interesting in terms of forming the cliches about skinhead isn't it because a uh, new english library that publishing house is sort of failing would then come up with the idea of you know commissioning uh, hack writers to write about various subcultures and they get this guy uh Jim Moffat, you know, who's masquerades as Richard Allen to write these Skinner books. I mean, apparently he, he wrote 250 books in 20 years, uh, churning them out. And, and um, even though we're, it was sort of written as though, uh, you know, he was part of the whole uh, subcultural thing, he was a 55-year-old Canadian, jacket and tie, and, uh, you know, writing these tales of street violence and aggro uh, from a seaside cottage in Sidmouth in Devon. And I'm not going to read uh, too much from it, because actually they are deeply offensive, um, in fact. But uh, the first one, Skinhead, I mean, I think apparently it sold a million copies, 1971. Super thug Cockney Joe Hawkins. I mean, the covers are really stylish of the books, but I'm not going to read uh, too much, because it is sort of deeply offensive stuff. Um, very racist. I mean, you assume, you hope that the publishers and the writer didn't share the prejudices of the main character, but uh, it's pretty nasty stuff. And, uh, you know, saying about uh, black people in positions on the face of London that would always be white, cockney and true British. 
uh, also perpetrated that myth of, um, you know, skins hating hippies. Hippies, those bastards, the bleeding welfare state took care of them. Grant said they were students, handouts from Social Security to pay fines for demonstrating and pot-taking. And then Joe beats up a youth club and uh, has underage sex with a girl in front of her mother. Lots of violence and stuff. He, he ends up... Uh, getting in trouble and going to prison but it returns in in subsequent books you know to get up to more sort of mischief and it there's also and you're kind of wondering that there's a bit of sort of voyeuristic vicarious prejudice uh sharing going on there amongst some of the readers and uh, it carries on in later next year he writes a book boot boys 1972 Blood seeped from the man's eye, from his ear. Groans like those of a pregnant cow about to abort filled his ears. Blood spurted. The fan slumped. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty technical stuff. Um, pig stick the bastard, Tom. Stretch him out, bleeding. Um, this kind of glorification of football violence and tribal stuff. Uh, you know, that's that's the cliche that got formed, wasn't it? But And also with the racial stuff, it was interesting. I mean, it seemed to be not... Uh, violence towards, say, Jamaican and West Indies so much as uh, violence towards people of Asian origin. And was that somehow the, the case, that in fact it was all right to be Jamaican or uh, from that side, but it wasn't to be Well, Asian? I think you still see it today with Islamophobia. And certainly where I was at school, you know, the... Um it was a mixed school. It was about 25% Muslim, um, which was, you know, unusually high at that period, um, early, mid-70s, late-70s when I was at school. Um, and then there was uh, the white kids and there was some uh, West Indian kids, the old African kid. Um, and this, the West Indians and the African kids were Christian. And, you know, that was a split. It was a Christian-Muslim split, which, you know, I didn't particularly like and you got shot by both sides for not kind of really going along with that but certainly in terms of that kind of boot boy culture that we were into you know the black and white kids could be into that in terms of west indian african but the muslim kids were into their own thing you know a lot of them as well at that time they um been born in pakistan because where i was at school the kids were mainly from pakistan and they'd come to school and not know English. And you'd see them looking at amazement out the window in winter the first time they ever saw snow and stuff. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of discrimination. They'd get put in the um, remedial classes. Right, they were the kind of others. And, um, you know, for the Jamaican kids, kids from West Indies, they've been here a generation longer or been born here, right? <clears throat> yeah, they'd been born or even a kid with Africa. There was one kid I was close to with African parents, you know, he... He was definitely born in London, right, born in Clapham. Right. Now, Stuart, you've mentioned a few times this phrase, boot boy. So what was a boot boy, what's the connection between boot boys and skinheads? Well, the, there was the evolution from skinheads. So you had um, the skinhead, then the suedehead, where the hair's grown out a little bit more and the clothes change slightly, so you have the crombies and stuff coming Crom in. Crombies are a uh, three-quarter length coat. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the, uh, the, the, the boot boy is the next evolution of that, where the hair is, you know, long basically, you know, not necessarily as long as a hippie, but down the shoulder, longer hair. We weren't, you know, when I was at school, the uniform rule was that you had to, um, your hair wasn't allowed to be more than two inches over your co uh, collar if you were a boy, but um, if you were male. But, um, 
you know that so and then you had the oxford bags was a big thing with the cherry red dms if you could get them Ox, oxford bags of trousers right yeah oxford bags of trousers so they um, they have the three button waistband and they go down and uh, they're like absolutely um you know they're not flared they're just wide from top to bottom yeah you'd stick your hands in your pockets if you had a good pair of boots i only ever had army service boots i never had dms but you know <laughs> Some kids persuaded their most fine form. <laughs> DMs being uh, Dr. Martins. But um, so Oxford bags are these particular type of trousers, very sort of wide. Uh, a bit like sort of 40s style, are they? And um, But apart from the fact that they sort of end, they end below your, above your ankles. Oh, down to your ankle. But the thing was, you could stick your hands in the pockets and draw the trouser up to reveal how high your boots went. And, the- and these boots, Dr. Martins or army boots, they, they go all the way up your shins towards your knees, right? They can do, yeah. And so if they went right up to your kneecap and, the, you know, how many um, eye holes you had for the laces, the more eye holes you had, the cooler you were. And, you know, the cherry red was considered the coolest colour rather than the black when I was at school. So you could pull those up and then, you know, you'd be wearing tank tops and the kind of um, Brewers picture shirts, you know, so they'd have printed pictures on the shirts rather than the kind of classic um, check and stuff. But as I said earlier, if you look at... Um, Pictures of the gorillas, the band, the original band, the gorillas from the 70s, originally the Hammersmith gorillas with Jesse Hector. If you look at pictures of them, even when they're releasing stuff on Chiswick Records in 76, 77, that is, you know, the absolute height of satorial style that we were aspiring to as school kids in like 74, 75. And so on the one hand, you, you know, going along with that, you've got the glam thing, but it's not, you know, the kind of glitter, sexual ambiguity of someone like Mark Bolan. Um, you know, because it's definitely associated with being into um, football, um, you know, fighting, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Right, so you've got this whole tribal antisocial football hooliganism violence thing, and some of it's associated with skin, quite a lot of it uh, not. And then, But then you've got skins evolving into boot boy, and uh, the fighting and the football comes along with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, everyone was into football. The other thing everyone was into was uh, boxing. You know, they were the big sports for um, kids at my school. And then you had, uh, um, you know, people get into different things. So the um, the uncool kids were into kind of, you know, whatever was in the charts, uh, which, you know, towards the late 70s became more disco as the thing they were into. And the kids who conceived themselves as more cooler and discerning were into, uh, you know, going to Northern Seoul. And then towards the end of the 70s, start, start having a problem being from around down south rather than up north. I don't know what it was like up north um, because they couldn't decide whether they wanted to be into northern soul or become kind of uh, jazz funketeer type soul boys because you had those kind of evolutions. But certainly there was, you know, kids in my class were going up to Wigan um, Casino, which was the kind of later really famous northern soul venue on the weekends yeah i mean the northern soul uh, story is also totally fascinating isn't it i mean it's kind of seems to be one of those uh, subcultures that based more in the north of england uh, yorkshire and lancashire but kids from all over the country you know getting together driving across country meeting up at service stations and heading to these these venues in the north of england for these drug-fueled speed-fueled uh all soul all-nighters with this american imported rare music and i guess sort of raves would have called them later but they're kind of like club disco nights right yeah they got i think it was saturday night wasn't it so they'd um 
folks be listen to rare records and they'd have this whole cover-up thing so that the DJs wouldn't want to, they'd be looking for rare you know, sound to play. I mean, it's a kind of classic Motown type sound, but you're looking for records that people don't know to always find something more obscure and more better. It's a kind of receding object that you can never attain. And, um, you know, so, so it's uh, just very, very obscure records. And, you know, this is also what people forget. I mean, obviously, Tainted Love was a big, well-known Northern Soul song at the time, but it was considered, you know, relatively obscure and still cool in the mid-70s when I first um, heard it. But obviously now it's like completely well-known, but a lot of the, the stuff those kids were into is really well-known. And that was a working-class thing too, Stuart. But just go back to the... Uh, and was that true of the fighting as well? I think um, in the 70s it was a more, yeah, working-class thing. You know, I mean, it's not to say... It's exclusively working class because, you know, one of the most notorious um, Chelsea headhunters is Nazi Chris Henderson from the band Combat 84. Who were the Chelsea headhunters? The Ch- well, you had these different um, crews of um, football hooligans and the Chelsea headhunters were one of the more notorious. And if you came from around West London, South West London, wherever everyone was likely to support Chelsea um, because they were the nearest really big team in the 70s, which was why I supported West Ham from the East End to (laughs) not go along with that. Um, But, um, yeah, if you, you know, I I mentioned uh, Chris Henderson from the band Combat 84, who I understand is dead now anyway, uh, who was a kind of Nazi bonehead football hooligan Chelsea headhunter. Um, but who also went to Charterhouse School, which is one of the kind of most exclusive, expensive, posh, what we call in England public schools, um, but that's private education for people from around the world. Um, You know, so obviously he's an example of someone who um, wasn't from that kind of more working class background, but certainly the people I met who were into that. And, you know, people from a a wide, really wide area, because, you know, I wasn't huge on football anyway, which was probably why I could decide to support West Ham but not bother to go and see him much. But, you know, it wound other people up because I didn't support Chelsea, just as where I live now, everyone supports um, Arsenal because it's a nearest big team, but I have to tell them that I support West Ham still. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not really particularly a football fan. I'm not a football fan at all, in fact. I don't know why I'm saying particularly. Uh, but um, when people ask me which London football team I support, I always say, Leighton Orient, and actually, because it's the only um, uh, pitch, match, football ground, whatever, that I've actually been to in London and um, out east. And um, the thing about lights about Leighton Orient, I don't know if this is true, but uh, I was told that it's the only football ground where there's never been a fight. But I think that's also, I think the average age of uh, Leighton Orient supporters is sort of 67 or something. And the other thing about Leighton is it's cheap to get in because they're not um, <laughs> a top flight club. Yeah, they're not very good. <laughs> Uh, you know, when I'm not telling people I support West Ham, I tell them Leighton anyway because uh, <laughs> it's a better deal. <laughs> well, listen, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. If you if you come into London and you want to go to a football match, it's probably a lot cheap. It's a lot cheaper, a lot more peaceful um, at Leighton Orient, especially these days during COVID times. I imagine. Um, anyway, there we go. So, uh, but okay, so you, Skins uh, and evolved, and you got Northern Soul, you got the Boot Boys. And then, of course, as you move through the 70s, uh, and then along comes punk, right? So how did that interact and what happened with Skin then? Well, I mean, I think if you look at punk in, uh, you know, 76, 77, around London, around the UK, it's very much a kind of 
collage of all the previous kind of youth cultures i think you know the most important thing underpinning it and for me the most important british youth culture is definitely mod um so but it's mixing in those things so you've got elements coming from the glam rock and if you listen to and a lot of the you know what people call junk shop glam now which is the more obscure glam stuff that there's a following for you can hear that kind of stomping that comes into punk in in those kind of glam records as well and um you know there's the boot boy influence but it's kind of collaging all those kind of elements of youth culture but it's also obsessed with uh authenticity for whatever reason not and so i think the skinhead thing is for the people in punk you know you had the initial punk scene in for london you know 76 77 and then 78 starts splitting in different ways 79 more by 80 it's really split so it goes in the kind of more post-punk arty direction you know you have the people wanting to have a more authentic kind of working class punk kind of initially going for bands like sham and then kind of you have someone like gary bushel pushing the oi scene so the skinner thing going off and of course in Ned figure is Ian Stewart, which again, ironically, that's he's a grammar school boy whose father owned a factory and he becomes the leading kind of uh, Nazi skinhead of the of the 80s. You mentioned uh, this word oi. Uh, what was oi? Oi was probably a bit of a hype by Gary Bushell. So you had Gary Bushell, the music journalist. Was he, yeah, he was originally in the SWP and then ended up being a kind of columnist for The Sun, didn't he? The Sun being a popular right-wing tabloid in the UK. Uh, he used to write for Sounds and he started, uh, you know, he was looking for um, kind of bands to champion who were more kind of authentic working class Um I mean, before he hit upon Oi, he tried a few other things. So there was um, a band called Crisis who did a lot of um, rock against racism and stuff like that, a very kind of basic band. And he wrote about them in sounds, I think, in 78, saying, you know, Crisis are a clenched fist rammed hard into the flabby belly of what punk had become. Although they turned, you know, the two main songwriters, the rest of the band were fine, but the two main songwriters uh, became neo-Nazis eventually as well from that band, um, for whatever reason. Uh, but they were, you know, a musically very primitive band and he was looking for some kind of authentic, very kind of basic primitive punk rock and roll, um, which didn't require much uh, talent to perform. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, he eventually hit upon these bands. I don't know exactly how, like the Four Skins and the Last Resort um, singer was known as Millwall, Roy Pierce again, um, you know, the football thing coming in with that. And those bands kind of singing, you know, talking about reflecting the reality of lives and singing about violence. But I think it was a kind of pretty uh, one dimensional reality if uh, that was all their lives <laughs> consisted of. But that was the kind of. What was the, what was the sound of Oi then? Was it, it was quite punk, was it? Yeah, it was a very uh, basic punk rock, often very badly produced. Two, three chord rock and roll that, you know, anyone without any talent could play. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and of course, this is the time when there is this kind of the first big sort of skin revival but now it is quite definitely quite political and there's this quite hard split between uh, left and right and um, on the right it, all these associations with uh, racial racism and the neo-nazis come in don't they yeah yeah so you've got the um you know, the bands across an array of positions, so um, the less obviously political bands 
or less overt political bands like the Foreskins, you know, still using songs like a Phoenix from the, you know, lyrics about a Phoenix from the Ashes or um, Last Resort. Um, uh, they changed the song Stormtroopers in Stay Press uh, to Skinners in Stay Press by the time they released it because obviously they didn't want uh, to get labelled as Nazis. And then you had the people like Ian Stewart, who's... Initial band Screwdriver was on Chiswick Records, a kind of respectable independent record label that did a lot of new wave stuff in the late 70s pub rock. Um, he decided to, after kind of writing to the music press and denying that he was involved with the National Front, although it turned out he joined, uh, decided to go outright Nazi in the, in the 80s and uh, recorded for um, National Front White Noise label so that's overtly uh you know neo-nazi right wing um and then on the other hand you had uh, the kind of bands going through the scar scene so you had the specials which are using that rude boy skinner crossover look and selector and all sorts of other bands with a more kind of leftist outlook so you got uh scar and two-tone coming there and so tell, tell us about the interaction with uh between that and sort of skin and Scar and Teuton, they're, they're not London uh, or the North. They're more, um, they're more Midlands, right? Uh, well, I don't know because I, re- I saw specials. I think I'm trying to think who they were supporting. Maybe it was the UK subs or someone. So then I'd go and see them. I saw them a few times down the Nashville. I don't know if you remember that pub in West Kensington. Uh, it's quite famous because for a Sex Pistols gig there in 76, at which there was a fight got widely covered in the music press. But it was just one of those regular London pub rock venues. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, uh, my thing was always you go and see a band when they were playing small places, maybe a couple of hundred people, but you wouldn't bother when they were playing um, to thousands, even if it was only 2,000. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, you, there was uh, certainly... When I saw this, I saw the uh, Madness support specials a couple of times. So again, it's Ian Stewart was a Rodian, lived with Suggs's mother, didn't he, for a while? Who became right. a screwdriver? Wasn't that uh, kind of exposed by the sun for something at some point? Uh, which isn't to say that they were right wing. Um, what made um, what what made Scar and uh, Two Tone? different then uh well you had the uh the scar the two-tone was explicitly uh drawing on uh, jamaican musical influences and black musical influences uh so they could uh you know they weren't trying to deny where they were coming from and what was influencing them and, and precisely if you look at the specials they had all those songs like racist friend um uh you know it was a kind of message of unity and uh, solidarity between people uh the audience when I was going, which wasn't uh, when it became bigger, I uh, was predominantly white, not exclusively so, but that was the same as most of the punk gigs, uh, even if it was uh, more leftist bands, even if it was rock against racism and there were reggae bands playing, the audience still tended to be predominantly white in London in the 70s. But, uh, you know, they were explicitly using a, a black style of music. I mean, I think what's very ironic when you look at in Stuart's uh, screwdriver is he I mean the the music is appallingly bad to listen to um, but as he evolved um, and kind of got more emotional about his whiteness he became more and more kind of drawn to um, blues rock influences which are more evidently black than the kind of 
punk sound where you might lose the syncopation on the bass. And they're using these slogans like white power. I mean, obviously that's taking off from the, the black power slogan and doesn't make sense outside of that context. It also makes no sense because when essentially you have a um, racist society with a kind of white hierarchy, you do have, in effect, white power. Yeah, which yeah. Is- so, I mean, but uh, and Scar, in terms of musically, was like a sort of speeded up version of reggae. Scar came from kind of listening to a lot of the American R&B stuff and then putting this more syncopated um, rhythm guitar and stuff on it evolved into a more Jamaican sound. And then um, from that you had Lovers Rock and then the emergence into reggae, so yeah. Yeah, and the kids looking back to that earlier uh, skinhead look, as you say, albeit kind of mixed together... Um, you know, one thing which strikes me uh, when I was looking at images of it, say, particularly when you look at the girls' haircuts and stuff, it was quite sort of gender ambivalent, wasn't it? With the girls with the feather cuts, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And funnily enough, I've got um, a good friend who uh, works as a dominatrix who always has a feather cut, you know, because he always... <laughs> that's a, Well, that's a new angle as well. I hadn't actually put that together, the, the dominatrix in the skinhead look. But... Um, in terms of those political uh, divisions, so we kind of know about that with Screwdriver and the far right and uh, BNP National Front and all that. And But of course, there was also on the hard left with bands like the Redskins and they were, you know, very militant, um, anti-racist, part of that whole movement. Also, uh, anti-Thatcher, part of that whole movement, right? Very sort of pro pro-Labour party. Uh, and I mean, not just uh, Redskins, you had uh, later on, I don't know if you know, Blaggers ITA, who were signed to EMI, did an album with EMI. Um, they were really hardcore. They were um, and one of the best bands playing around London a lot in the 90s. I'd go and see them a lot. Um, but yeah, again, with that, that kind of hardcore, uh, they were involved with anti-fascist action, hardcore anti-racist action and um in terms of their politics they were also um quite into uh, republic irish republicanism yeah i mean uh, well not just ireland i mean in the 80s this is this time when um sort of skin skin culture kind of goes international doesn't it um i'm not sure about elsewhere but i mean it certainly goes to germany and uh, russia where it's the kind of rather nasty sort of right wing uh, end of it <clears throat> quite violent and uh, neo nazi influences um yeah i mean i'm not so familiar with the scenes in germany or russia but if you take somewhere like italy which i'm a little bit more familiar with um you know there's definitely as many leftist bands as as rightists i mean there's bands like uh, nabat from bologna um and the original class criminale right, okay that's interesting so there's a there's a thriving skin scene in italy um in the 80s and 90s and it's not associated with neo-Nazi stuff at all. Well, the, there's a split between right and left. Um, and I've come across uh, people trying to kind of educate the right kids in the skin scenes and show how, uh, you know, it doesn't really make sense and try and kind of heal some of the more problematic elements of that. But, uh, yeah, definitely in, in there's a very thriving skin scene in Italy and uh, uh, Spain as well. Uh, I'm less familiar with the politics of the the scene in Spain, although I've met some of the people from it who seem more non-political than anything else. Um, And I think the other thing you have to think about in terms of Italy and Spain, I'm not sure how much it would apply to Russia and uh, 
Germany is that, you know, they are kind of conservative Catholic societies. And if you want to break away from that, then um, subculture is a good way to do it. But unlike for someone like me in London who can get into punk or skin or mod and treat it as a fashion and swap around how I look every night of the week in the late 70s, um, if you want to kind of maintain that break from kind of tradition and conservatism, often it's, uh, you know, you tend to do that hand in hand with maintaining that punk identity. So, you know, I know quite a lot of um, middle-aged Span Spaniards who are still like punk rockers, you know, whereas I wouldn't really want to kind of keep that identity up or if they happen to get into skin, their skins or goths or whatever it is. Mm. Um, so there's a kind of different relationship to the subculture there is mm. taken far more seriously as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is amazing, isn't it? Because as a subculture, skin head skin has really endured isn't it i mean and it's like goth in a way i mean it's opposite in terms of hair but you know goth is a subculture that's um really kind of endured i was talking to kathy unsworth about it you know and she's talking about the origins of goth in the sort of late 70s and early 80s but it's still here you know lots of other subcultures kind of disappeared but you know goth is still really strong it's a strong look and you know it's kind of evolved into emo and various other kind of uh, uh, types of sounds and specific kind of more looks, you know, the kind of the whole sort of futuristic uh, thing. But it's still very much around and, you know, international too. And skin the same, isn't it? And uh, I suppose, you know, talking to Roger, you know, Burton from the Horse Hospital, you know, about subcultures and about clothes and about looks and the way that young people use them to distinguish themselves, you know, You've seen that, you know, shaving your head is is quite a strong thing to do. And, you know, it's got all sorts of associations, particularly in countries like Germany and Russia, um, of course, because it's got associations with crime and prison camps and all that sort of stuff. And I remember there was that, um, I think it was a Guardian TV commercial, which was very clever because it showed this old lady, I think, walking along the street. And behind her, you can see this skinhead running towards her looking really frightening. Uh, and then it kind of cuts and you think, you know, he's about, obviously he's about to mug her or, or attack her. And then you see it from a different angle. And in fact, he's trying to save her. I think something's about to fall from the building or something from scaffolding. And he's actually running so that he can push her out of the way. And it was clever because it, obviously it's advertising The Guardian and, uh, you know, their claim to be, have a different balanced viewpoint. But it did, in a way, highlight the whole thing about you know, skin that we've got these kind of lots of us have got these preconceptions about it, and it's they're not actually true, or the story's a lot more complicated and nuanced. Um, so, Stuart, we're getting towards the end now. So, um, tell us, I mean, you know, like punk and goth, skin is still alive and kicking, right? It's still um, a strong, vibrant subculture. Again, one of the places that kind of punk and skin cultures have thrived recently is Southeast Asia. So I think you see it particularly in Indonesia and in Malaysia. Um, and in London, um, you don't even see, you used to, we used to joke that if you see a skinhead, they're either a tourist or they're gay. Um, but, uh, now, you know, because, you know, again, that's that reappropriation and certainly in, you know, the provincial skinhead thing was probably different, but in London, it very much became a gay look for a while. Mm. Um, but now if you see a skinhead in London, they're probably Spanish or Italian, but moved here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it did get co-opted, um, by, uh, parts of, um, 
the gay culture, um, didn't it? And um, in the 80s and 90s, I guess, there was bands like the Communards, weren't there? You know, they very much had that kind of rude boy look, uh, didn't they? I mean, you know, because you had the kind of Leatherman and gay clone thing, it's a kind of another kind of hyper-masculine look, which then that hyper-masculinity then tips over into um, gayness. When you push something enough, far enough in one direction, it often flips into its opposite. Um, and again, that was taken up uh, by, you know, some gay filmmakers like Bruce LaBruce, No Skin Off My Ass. Mixed race, gay couple, and some Nazi skin. You know, he's a an interesting filmmaker. Yeah, and in terms of film, I mean, it's not a film about skinheads, but it is sort of it's for me anyway. It's completely connected with that look. Is um, Clockwork Orange, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You had bands like the Addicts who were kind of putting their that kind of Clockwork Orange look, the white boiler suit. Again, I think that was much more a kind of um, late seventies, early eighties, and there's a complete fascination there. Uh, you know, a lot of people have a fascination with Clockwork Orange because it was blamed for um, inciting violence and Kubrick uh, removed it from circulation in the UK for a very long time. So people became really fascinated by the film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, apart from the look of Alex and uh, his cronies, there's, you know, some of the uh, places that it's set, those kind of brutalist um, council estates in South East London, Thamesmead, I think it is, isn't it? And, um, you know, all mixed up in imagination with that kind of urban dystopia of violence and, you know, that look. You know, the look and the uh, interior decoration in um, Clockwork Orange is absolutely fantastic. I'm not actually very much of a fan of it as a film in terms of its uh, kind of narrative and storytelling, but I think the kind of... Uh, the look is extremely strong in that film. Stuart, we got to the end of our time. Um, thanks very much. I know that was a kind of a whirlwind uh, journey through the world of skin and boot boys, beatniks, rude boys, two-tone. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? All these different overlapping uh, countercultural subcultures and stuff. So um, I think um, if you're happy to, we should definitely ask you to come back and talk more about countercultural stuff. But in the meantime... Thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thanks for thinking of me. There we go. Another episode uh, of the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you for listening. hope you enjoyed that one. Um, you can hear us. Check us out at bureauoflostculture.com. I'll put a link to Stuart's work in the show notes too. A really amazing range of countercultural art, writing, film and all sorts of other stuff. You can also, of course, you may be listening to this uh, as a podcast rather than at Soho Radio and uh, you can get it as a podcast now at Apple and Google and Spotify and all those other places. If you've enjoyed it, leave us a review. We'd love that. And be back for more Tales from the Underground, Tales from the Other Side, tales that are half forgotten, half remembered, rare or just worth getting out and dusting off and telling again. See you next time. I am Stephen Coates. 